Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. This is the third of many episodes in what I'm calling our In the C-Suite series. In these episodes, we explore what it takes to be a C-Suite leader, what has shaped and influenced them, and how they've responded to the challenges of these extraordinary times during the pandemic. Now, I hope you can't hear the rain. It is pouring here in Philadelphia, and the rain is beating down on the awning outside the window of this office where I'm doing the podcast. So I hope it's not a distraction. I don't think it's coming through to this microphone. And by the way, I am also the host of the MedTech Leaders Community. In this community, leaders get together to help each other out with best practices, problems, solutions, ideas, and successes, all with the support of subject matter experts. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to medtechleaders.net. There is a 30-day free trial. Today, we are honored to have with us Stephanie Maris, who is the Managing Director, Entrepreneurship, at the University of California, San Francisco Innovation Ventures. Her education, mentoring, and networking program has provided the support necessary to give birth to dozens of life science startups. Stephanie knows the leadership profile necessary to contribute to the success of a new venture. We talk about this and her very popular global online entrepreneurship class. The 2021 spring cohort of this class begins March 31st. One of the members of the MedTech Leaders community took this class last year, and he told me he highly recommends it. Even people with advanced degrees like MBAs, doctors of medicine, doctors of science, and so on, take this course. You will see a link here on the screen, and I also post a link in the show notes. Don't forget, if you like this episode, please recommend it to a friend, rate it, and or subscribe. Now let's get together with Stephanie to better understand the important elements of leadership in a startup environment and also learn more about this terrific global online entrepreneurship class. Stephanie, it is really terrific to have you on the program today. Thank you for taking the time. This is a really great addition to what I am calling my In the C-Suite series because you're dealing with it day in and day out with startups. So thanks for being here. Of course. It's good to be here with you, Ted. So I've got a bunch of questions we're going to ask you today as we talk about what you do, what your role is, and the listeners have always already been introduced to you in a in a couple different ways, but you do really have a terrific background and and career history. Um, just give us a brief introduction of yourself and the a description of what your role is at this uh, UCSF Innovation Ventures. 
Sure, happy to do that. So probably first should tell people who UCSF is in case uh, there are listeners yeah. and viewers who aren't too sure. Um, it's the University of California, San Francisco. So we're one of 10 campuses that part of the University of California. Our campus is quite unique because we are only a graduate institution and we only deal with science and medicine. Uh, so we do scientific research. We have a lot of Nobel laureates. Um, we have top tier U.S. hospitals and medical school and really great specialties and great clinicians. And that's my world. So um, so what do I do in that yeah. world? I, um, I, I'm, I'm very different. I'm the business person who teaches all these scientists and clinicians how to set up a business around their innovative ideas. So these are people who are on the line and actually doing the work and they come up with ideas. And for instance, on the clinical side, they might um, see a better way to do a procedure. You know, if they only had a certain tool, a medical device or on the diagnostic side, they might see a better way to diagnose a, a disease state. And then from those ideas, some of them, a small number, but some of them are interested in starting a commercial venture around them and bringing that information and that that idea out to the world as a product. So my world is to try to help people at UCSF and more broadly in the ecosystem that I participate in, which is Silicon Valley. Um, help them start new companies that can bring science or technology out to the world. Well, that's quite revealing to me because I guess I thought that UCSF was more of a, a complete university. I mean, I know people that work at the medical center there in San Francisco, like Richard Abbott, who is the who was for a while the chair of the ophthalmology department, and and other people. But I didn't realize that it's really a very focused institution. And then you have this unusual role of trying to meld science and medicine with business and new ventures. Yeah, it's not, not easy. And um, I draw on UC Berkeley, which has a business school, and I'm often over there begging uh, some of their MBA candidates to come over and sit with us and help our scientists and clinicians um, develop their ideas from a business standpoint. Of course, I'm not doing that right now because I'm not going anyplace, but um, I have strong connections at Berkeley. But yeah, we don't have engineers. We have some bioengineers, but we don't have um, heavy computer science and um, we certainly don't have business. So that's the piece that I'm contributing to our ecosystem at UCSF. And of course, one of the great things about your location is that you're right on top of the heart of Silicon Valley. Absolutely. And um, I've made it a point since I've been at UCSF to build that ecosystem, bring Silicon Valley into our events, our classes. Um, when I have a class, I bring in great lecturers who are practitioners in the Valley and really try to uh, create more visibility for what we're doing at UCSF that fits into the Silicon Valley ethos of startup uh, companies. Right. And which is, which is tremendous and what a terrific resource to have right there. But of course you are a resource to them. Now, one of the things 
you and I were joking about the other day as we're preparing for this is that I put down in our interview outline that reading your background was actually exhausting because I'm sitting there thinking, how does a woman, you know, put all of this activity and all these accomplishments in her career? Um, It's just really phenomenal. It's very, very impressive. If anybody has time to look up your bio uh, at U- UCSF, they should do it and they will be as exhausted as I was. But <laughs> but just you know, s- saying that, how did you get into this part of your career? I mean, where were you before this all started and what led you into this role of, of trying to help teach people how to turn ideas into um, helpful ventures? Well, I won't say it's a random walk, but it was not a planned pathway either. And I'm a very type one personality. So that's how I do all these things. I just get bored if I'm not doing a lot. Um, But I started out in consumer marketing a very long time ago. And and I was selling um, skillet dinners and uh, coffee and all kinds of things from a marketing standpoint. That wasn't very fulfilling, but in any event, as things evolved, I ended up in Boston in the tech world and uh, did a number of jobs in the computer industry, uh, marketing and um, then strategic planning. And along the way, I got an MBA at Wharton. Um, But I, you know, I never found the tech world all that interesting. And it would have been if I was out here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley at the time. But in Boston, it was all focused on hardware. And I just found hardware really boring. Like, who cares how many MIPS and megaflops there are um, in a computer? (laughs) It just... (laughs) <laughs> was I really helping the world by making more MIPS and more megaflops? And so um, I had the opportunity to go to work for the governor of Massachusetts in a very senior level policy position. And I did business policy for the Commonwealth. And in that role, I got to see biotech in its early days in, in mm-hmm. Boston. And it was fascinating. It was about biology and um, human health and uh, thinking of new ways to approach these uh, intractable problems of disease. And I just found the people in it fascinating and the field fascinating. So when I had enough of state government, which happened pretty quickly, like in about a year and a half, (laughs) I, I... I jumped into the biotech world and was fortunate to know some of the early greats in that world were running um, Genzyme and Genetics Institute and Biogen. And that's that's how I got in. And my first job was at Vertex um, marketing to Wall Street. They had just gone public. And so I used my marketing skill set to make the transition. Wow, that's amazing. You know, and actually Boston is a great place because it's it does have a lot of um, biotech and medical device work going on in the area. And you talk about your early career in marketing, you know, selling skillet dinners. But the good news about that is traditionally in med tech, we are terrible marketers, especially small to medium sized companies, new ventures. Uh, they typically are very technology oriented and or sales oriented, um, which doesn't really work when you have a pandemic. But but still, all along the path, your innate skill of wanting to listen to the customer is very, very valuable here. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But so so you're in Boston, you've gotten into biotech. And then how do you make the move out to California? 
fulfillment of a long-term dream. I, um, I, I spent many years in Boston, first tech, then biotech, and uh, raised my kids there. They went through high school and all that. And finally, I was free to go live someplace I wanted to live. Um, and I, I couldn't wait to get rid of the snow and the hail and the freezing <laughs> rain and the <laughs> ice. And uh, I had always wanted to live here in California. So when my eldest son got into UC Berkeley, I said, okay, this is the time. I'm going to stop complaining to everybody and just get on an airplane and move. So um, in 2003, during the JP Morgan conference, which is the biggest healthcare conference in the world, yep. um, I decided this was, I was moving and I came out with two suitcases and had my dog shipped later on. <laughs> that was it. I was here. And um, at the time I was consulting. So I was able to keep working for clients in Boston and start networking around here, um, but it wasn't easy. It's a completely different network. It's a different way of approaching the business. And people here have deep connections that go back to the early years of Genentech and uh, other early companies. And I came in with none of those. Um, but over time, I figured it out. And um, that's how I've survived. I guess you did. And <laughs> when did you join UCSF? So I joined the university in 2012, and I must say it was a direct result of uh, the then recession, the recession of, I think it was 2010, or at least that was- 2008, my, yep. Yeah, my consulting business held up for a little while and then disappeared. And I thought, this is not a good strategy for a career. I think I better go find a paycheck. And um, luckily, <laughs> UCSF produced one. You know, the role has evolved quite a lot. In the beginning, uh, they they really said, look, we had this entrepreneurship program. It sort of has disappeared. And we want you to take it over and, and build it. And so I started with a pretty blank sheet of paper. And um, like any good entrepreneur, no funding and uh, no resource, <laughs> but but the you know the freedom to go pursue what I thought was right. And I built a program over the years that has had a lot of traction. Is certainly known every place around Silicon Valley has a reputation in the United States. Um, I reach into uh, U.S. government, State Department, and other places, uh, including the White House. And, and now I'm building that global reputation. So it's been a good ride. It certainly has. So <laughs> you were a startup yourself. Totally. And I, yeah. I just restarted this year. So <laughs> I've now done it twice. <laughs> right. A startup and or a turnaround. Either way, you want to look at it. But uh, <laughs> exactly. what, a, what a great, I, I just love a great career story. And, and that is a good one. And since then, you have really influenced a lot of uh, companies. You've helped influence the introduction of a lot of technologies and, and, and science that ended up benefiting people. So congratulations to you. So let's, let's move on to what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And so one of the things we were talking about the other day which I think is really important as you and I spoke about it is what is the entrepreneurial mindset? I mean, what, what are the things that make somebody capable of being effective in the C-suite? 
of yeah, a startup? A great, Sorry. Yeah, I really like that question, Ted, because um, many people just don't have any clue what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I think some of us are born to it. Um, some of us grew up around it and it became part of our lexicon. And others of us have just always thought that that might be a fun thing to do. And maybe they don't have the right internal uh, connections to be able to do it. So if you grow up and, and people in many countries do this, they their one aspiration is go work for a bank or go work for HP or go work for um, you know, pick a large company, Novartis. Uh, it's a completely different mindset than being an entrepreneur. To work in a large company, you have to be comfortable with structure, which is given to you, uh, hierarchy, which is just part of the game, and a long time frames until decisions get made, which is usually often by committee or multiple committees. And you might have a nice lifestyle. You probably can go to work at nine and leave at five and take your vacations and, you know, make a good living, uh, good earnings and be able to support a family and buy a house and so on. That's completely different than being an entrepreneur and not everyone should go for the other route. So the entrepreneurial route is it's not lifestyle. Um, you're basically giving up all those other things that you might have valued to make a success out of something you're passionate about. And there are really no rules. There's no structure. There is no there's no manual. There's lots of ambiguity. You have to scramble a lot. You hustle. You move fast. Nobody gives you resources. You don't have anyone to lean on except your team. You have, have to have a team to be successful. Um, but there's no sort of institutional support that's going to give you the resource that you say, well, I really need to do a, a better job on marketing. So who can give me the marketing person? There isn't one. It has to be you. So, so um, that takes a very distinct type of personality. And I like to say that we entrepreneurs, I'm counting myself among them, are misfits. We, you know, we don't fit well into a corporate structure. We need to be able to do our own thing and, and make things happen and make them happen quickly. So that's what being an entrepreneur is all about. Yeah, it's a bit of a of an oxymoron in a way that in the C-suite, you're going to want somebody with some talent and skills sometimes that can come at the at the hands of a large corporation. Sometimes it doesn't. But then they have to have this mindset that you're talking about. Uh, what kind of work experiences could lay a good foundation for somebody that's in the C-suite of a startup? Um, you know, maybe having started your own company, whether it's, you know, something that you did in college or high school uh, or when you just got out on the side and then seeing what's involved in creating your reality. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, on some trip and I think it was in Germany, I was talking to the driver and he said he had a side gig um, importing salt from France. So he would drive 
his car um, over to the border to France and pick up salt and then resell it on the internet. And he said he was making more money than his job at Audi and was thinking of quitting. You know, and that's just that here he was a guy in a big company, but he really had this entrepreneurial drive and did something on his own to see if it was a fit. And he loved it. And, and that's the case with most entrepreneurs is they, they love what they do despite the difficulty of doing it. So I think the best training for being an entrepreneur is to try being an entrepreneur or at least work for an entrepreneurial company and see what it's like to uh, live in a place where decisions are made quickly and uh, there's always time pressure and maybe you don't have a lot of money. Uh, maybe you're running out of money, uh, but you have a chance to really um, be heard and to have impact. Right. I guess if if you were trying, if you were interviewing somebody for a C-suite role, and maybe they had a reasonably good pedigree, you'd be looking for those things in their background. For example, like when they were a kid, were they delivering a newspaper or doing something to make money? Um, because it was just natural to try to find a way to make some extra money versus your parents' allowance or whatever it might be. Or it could have been, like you said, you started a business in college. Um, uh, One of my nephews, he went to DePauw in Indiana, and he and a couple other guys started a laundry business where they uh, did the laundry for students. And they had a really great business, but yeah. now now he works for a, a private equity company, you know, helping to evaluate businesses and, and, you know, acquire things and so on. So, okay. So what about somebody possibly failing? Have you ever seen a, a situation where somebody came into the C-suite of a startup or emerging growth technology and, and they, they failed and, and then why, what are some of the reasons they could fail? Sure. And I'm just going to correct your lexicon for a minute. And in startups, we don't talk about C-suites because okay. there are, there might be six people in the company. And, right, right. You know, right. So we don't think like there's that place up there where all the big people are and I'm down here. It's very, very much more egalitarian. Um, okay, so how do people, I've seen a lot of people fail because the statistics are, you know, over 90% of startups don't make it. So why don't they make it? So first of all, it's not understanding the market. And they probably never did that basic market research, which we call customer discovery these days. And so I, I will, um, I'll give you a story from my past. I have a few. Um, but I was called one night by a venture capitalist I knew quite well. And he said, I'm about to fire George and I want you to take over the company tomorrow morning as CEO. And I said, could I have a little time to think about it? And (laughs) what happened with George? (laughs) And he said, you know, I actually knew what was going on in the company because I'd been uh, consulting there. So what happened was George came up with this idea um, and had some scientists, venture capital, put $10 million into it. But he never did the basic research that proved his idea would work and that anyone would want it. So um, so five years later and $10 million later, there, this basic proof of concept study had never been done and there was no market because of that. Because whenever you went out to someone and said, well, would you buy this product? They said, well, I don't know, does it work? Did you do this study? But he never did the study. So there's a case where he failed by not doing the most basic 
of, um, of, of research that has to happen for every product. So that's example one. Okay. is very different. It's about a mismatch between the corporate culture in a startup and a big company culture. So uh, at this time, I was working for a small biotech. We'd been around for, I don't know, maybe six or eight years at that point, but had never been successful and seemingly were always about to run out of money until uh, the CEO founder, who was a scientist, did some hat trick and he brought in enough money to survive for another six months and then we'd do it all over again. And finally, the board decided, look, well, maybe we need to get someone besides Charlie to run this place. And they hired the head of a country country manager at, at Merck. So this guy shows up and he's now given up his limousine he doesn't, he had a part-time admin, but no one who was going to run around and get his laundry back for him. And he was very uh, concerned with the renovation of his new Boston townhouse. And so he'd spend, you know, seemingly hours on the phone managing contractors and so on. Now, in the meantime, the company side was was hurting badly and we were close to running out of money again. And this guy was too consumed with his personal um, perks to really engage as he needed to and go, you know, go do the footwork required to get some money into the company. So eventually that didn't work out. And that's, that's a real problem is this cultural mismatch. Right. Right. You know, you talking about you don't necessarily call it the C-suite. And you and I were joking the other day because I worked for an Israeli startup and I was the um, president of the U.S. operation. And and I took turns cleaning the toilet. I mean, it, it, it is not necessarily a really romantic job uh, when you're just getting out, getting out of the blocks. You do have to be passionate about it. That's for sure. Yeah. And And you have to connect with the people in the company and you have to you have to understand where they're coming from and what their motivations are. I mean, you have to be a real manager, management by walking around. You can't sit in your big office on the, you know, the top floor of the company and then just hold court when you wanted to meet somebody. So it, it was sad. I, I, it was a sad situation um, that this company had so much trouble with the guy they thought would be their savior because he had a big title in his prior job. Another thing we talked about the other day was this need for flexibility. You've sort of hinted at it a couple times today as we're talking. You're talking about somebody has to be fast, be able to move, make decisions, and you know, sort of quick on their feet with few resources. And the other day we were using examples from your course. We're going to talk more about this course in a few minutes because you've got this tremendous program that you put on at UCSF. Um, but we were talking about and use the example of people that we'll just use the example of a course as a team in the, in the course is going through the process and the several weeks of the program. And they're trying to better understand their customer message and so on and so forth, that there's been some pivots. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, I think one of the biggest contributions that we can make to budding entrepreneurs is to have them understand that having technology isn't enough and that it really depends on what the market thinks of the benefits of your technology. 
Um, so one of the things we teach them from the beginning is something called customer discovery, which is really market research reframed. And we tell people, go out and talk to 20, 50, 100 potential customers and just listen to them. Find out what problems they have, what their needs are, and eventually you can test your idea with them and see if they say, wow, that is amazing. That is something I would pay so much to get because it solves a big problem I have. And, you know, when you're a scientist or clinician, you think you know what the problems are and you've got the solution, but that hasn't been tested against the people who can pay or will pay. Um, so, so what happens in this class? We send, we, this is a class that I'm not teaching at the moment called Startup 101. Uh, it's team-based and people form teams around an idea. And we send them out to talk to the market and to come back and describe what they learned. And every single one of them learns things they had no idea about when they got started. So then with that information, which it may say, well, you know, we're working on the wrong idea here. This People don't really need it or gee, the, the clinicians like it, but they're not paying for it. So when I go to the people who are paying the insurers or the hospital in some cases, um, they, they're not willing to pay for it. They don't see the economic benefit to their system. So then the teams have to pivot. That's the term you used. Um, right. And change some fundamental aspects of their idea. And in, you know, in some cases, they pivot to the point where they say, look, we, we've tried pivoting a couple of times and it's still not getting traction. So I, I guess this isn't the right idea. Let's go back to the drawing boards and start all over again. And, and that we celebrate because people have just gained themselves years of their lives where that they might have wasted spending on something that was never going to get traction in the market. So pivots are a good thing. And, and sometimes you can hit it when you pivot some element of maybe it's the business model, maybe it's uh, the market that you're going after, maybe it's some aspect of uh, the benefit that you're providing. Um, those are that's a very positive thing that happens as a result of this customer discovery. Yeah, a long time ago, I was uh, working in an ophthalmology company, and we needed to create a new chin rest for one of our instruments. And the engineer was very proud of. He dragged me in the office and said, "What do you think?" And I looked at it, and I could tell right away the design of it wasn't going to work very well. And I said, "Have you ever spent any time in a optometrist or ophthalmology office?" <laughs> and he said. No. <laughs> so I said, you're going to next week. <laughs> and and he ended up with a great design. But yeah, listening to the customer and you and I talked about like an, another service that you can find out in industry um, is healthcare economics, which can be very helpful. Some of these people do value analysis and they can help companies understand this. But I think the first thing, which is what you're teaching, is people have to be willing to listen and to change their idea. They they can't just be stubbornly set on one direction, one idea for their technology. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and you know, it depends how invested you are in the idea. So if you're a scientist who's been working on, you know, one 
one product, one idea for years. You've been doing experiment after experiment. Maybe you've gotten published someplace. You give talks at lecture. This is your baby. You know, it's going to be really hard for you to listen at really listen with open ears if you're hearing from pharmaceutical companies that they're just not interested in this, or you've done the wrong experiments, you have no proof of concept, or you know they don't see the economics to your healthcare economics uh, piece. So. Um, so that's difficult. And I would love to have people come in in the very beginning when they said, hey, I just had this idea that came out of my watching these last surgeries. And um, I think there's a better way to access this vein. And maybe I could develop a, a, a device that would get that better access. And then they go out and test it. And, you know, in the beginning, they haven't made a prototype. They haven't invested money. They're just going out with the idea to the right people, not to their buddy surgeons in their department who say, hey, that's so cool, Carl. I'm so glad you thought of that. But right. to people they don't know at all um, in an extended network and get get honest feedback. So, yeah, it, I think it depends where you come from. You have to have a strong value proposition. I was talking to a CEO the other day, this uh, young woman that's done a terrific job with this company. Uh, it's called Explore Surgical. I'll be interviewing her in a couple of weeks. And one of the things that she pointed out, and for listeners, you have to understand is even you really have to have a good value proposition because there's a lot of inertia. We call it inertia in healthcare, which is resistance to change. And even though something makes a lot of sense, people are busy. You know, they don't have time to learn something new um, or, to, or to give it consideration. They may use the excuse of wanting to see a lot of evidence, whatever it might be. And um, it can be difficult to overcome. So you have to have something that's relatively strong. Yeah, you know, we, we like to start with those med students. If you're going to get them involved with something new, and that's that's a great place to do it mm -hmm. because they, they aren't 20 years into a career getting accustomed to having done things just one way. So it's known that it's this is a really hard field to change minds if you're talking on the device side and something that a, a clinician would use. The other thing they don't like is to have their workflows disrupted in any way. So if you come in with a wonderful digital health idea and say, what you're going to have to get off your EMR and use this other app, but it's a really great app, they don't want to do it. Um, so I just see so many things that are set up for failure because they don't understand the basic mentality of a clinician. Right, exactly. It's different in pharmaceutical if you're talking therapeutics, but yeah, it's right. No, ex yeah, exactly. I understand. So we're segueing here. Let's let's move into. I was going to ask you. I'm looking at my notes here. Well, let's talk about the pandemic briefly. You know, how did successful um, leaders of startups react to the pandemic? Yeah, well, you know, they pivot and. Right? I, you know, I, I was in the, the tail end of teaching a class when the pandemic hit, and this was this team-based class that formed teams around ideas. And out of my, my 12 teams, four of them pivoted to a COVID application of what they were doing. And there was a, a testing diagnostic idea that was going to test for I can't even recall what cholesterol or something. Mm -hmm. um, there was a physical therapy idea. And so whatever the ideas were, they said, look, we, we have 
um, thought about technology that can impact human health care. The biggest problem out there is COVID. Let's go do something for COVID. And, you know, because they're entrepreneurial, they were able to make a quick decision, like in a week or even less, and then put together a business plan for going after the new COVID-oriented idea. So that's what I see. I, I see, I mean, look at uh, the two companies that are saving the world right now, BioNTech and Moderna, they were startups uh, 10 years ago. And it's no accident that they were startups and they're the ones who come up with this innovative technology. And just to take the example, of, well, they both, nobody was working on COVID, right? Right. Uh, but they had technology that they thought could be applied. So BioNTech pivoted from cancer to COVID. And I can't remember what Moderna was into, but but not COVID clearly. And they pivoted. And because they had a new technology that was very flexible, they are able to be the winners in this whole thing. So that just shows you how important uh, flexibility and moving quickly is in terms of solving these huge problems that we're facing right now. Absolutely. Okay, now we'll get to the course. So, um, because you got this masterclass that you're starting up here, it's going to start March 31st for people that are listening. And I've I've had the chance to look through the whole brochure and your slide presentation in advance of this um, interview. So I can already tell people it's a terrific program. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and and who's it for? Sure. Um, thanks for the opportunity to do this. I'm I'm just sharing my slides now because it's always easier to talk about things with slides. So this is my second entrepreneurial venture at UCSF. (laughs) The first one was setting up an entrepreneurship center because things changed with COVID. I realized I couldn't do what I've been doing, but what I could do was a global course online, make it virtual. And so I created this master class from Silicon Valley And I use the techniques we've just been discussing. I did this customer discovery before I launched this course. And I went out to uh, people that I knew and uh, in the general ecosystem of entrepreneurship and said, well, you know, do you think there's a need for something like this? What are the needs? And I created the course based on their feedback. It, I launched it. Uh, I launched it with a brochure and June 1st. It still wasn't a real course. And by the end of the summer, I had permission from UCSF to actually do this course. This is the first cohort that started last fall. And it was very exciting. I had no idea who was going to show up. But it turns out that who showed up was uh, were not students. These were professionals, young professionals, older professionals, middle-aged professionals of various types. They were clinical They were science, they were academe, they were tech transfer and investors and accelerators and big corporates and really just people um, interested in innovation. I had a health policy expert in it and uh, lots of UCSF faculty um, and faculty from around the, the world, frankly, from Japan and from Europe and from West Virginia and Texas and uh, every place. So um, this is some of the feedback that I got. Uh, and I don't know, let me move your little picture there. So uh, this is a vice chief of emergency medicine at one of our hospitals. And she said that the course is inspiring. I've learned so much from the speakers, peer forms and people's stories. 
Um, note that how many degrees she has. She actually has an MBA as well as her MD, MPH. So someone who's highly educated and found so much value in this different than what she'd learned. This man is in Hong Kong. Uh, he runs an accelerator there and said it's inspiring. Thank you for inviting the speakers. I love the classes. He couldn't come very often because of the time zone difference, but he watched all the recorded uh, lectures and was a participant that way. This is an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. He was a founder of a company called Decoded Health and said, I wish this class had been available before I joined a startup so I would have known what to look for. And um, so that was valuable feedback. And then this is Mirko is a PhD candidate from Pasteur Institute in Paris. And he is thinking he's going to leave academia and go do something in the commercial world. The course gave me the essentials for my future career outside academia. So lots of different people with different interests. And some of the reasons people were taking this class was they knew they wanted you to do a startup, or maybe they thought it would be interesting someday and wanted to learn more about it. Some people had an idea that they were wondering what to do with a startup or license it or sell it or do nothing. Others wanted to understand our startup scene, and I'll say not just U.S., but Silicon Valley. Uh, to They wanted a network for entrepreneurship. You know, if you're out there and not in a hub like I am, not so easy to find people who uh, love the idea of doing a startup or are currently entrepreneurs. Some people wanted to access to Silicon Valley, or they wanted to benchmark on the way we do things here. And uh, this gave them that assurance. And then just generally tapping into innovation thinking. Um, so you asked who should take this class. This is yes. based on who did take the class. So entrepreneurs, academics, clinicians, we talked about scientific researchers, investors uh, wanted to understand how we think here, startup advisors and consultants, people who are running accelerators or incubators, tech transfer people who need to license their science out and need to know more about how to do that. I had a student from India who was a senior executive in a very large, I think it was a billion dollar company. And he had responsibility for innovation and needed to know more about how to do this. Um, people doing economic development uh, in other countries would be interested. And then just basically anyone else who wants to understand what we call the Valley, Silicon Valley. Now that last course that you had, how many countries do you think were represented in your or the first course? Oh, I did a count. I know there are 13 countries and four continents. Wow. And yeah, it was really cool. Mm -hmm. I had people from Asia, from the Middle East, from uh, Russia, from uh, Europe, from Australia. I don't know if that's more than four continents. Uh, I think I counted <laughs> something that's not a continent in that list, but <laughs> it was so cool. We had we had a, an entrepreneur and academic from Dublin, Ireland, who would come no matter when the class was held. So I moved these classes around to different times so that um, people in Europe can see it at least 50% of the time live, even though we record everything. And then people in Asia can see it 50% and so on. Well, this guy from Ireland came to all of them. So sometimes it was 1 a.m. when class started in Dublin and he was there and I <laughs> sipping coffee or something, but um, being very participative. So it, it's That's cool. awesome. That's really yeah. great. 
a few more things about it. We're trying to teach people the, the difference between having an idea and an idea that can be an actual commercial opportunity. And then what's involved in a business plan? What do you need to think through? And then what do investors want to see? The, the last two are really pretty much the same. We talked about Moderna and BioNTech, but our goal is a high impact scalable startup. So something that can really impact human health. And then we cover these key topics in our lectures. Um, I won't read them all. I'll leave that slide up for a minute so people can read it. But if you're starting a life science um, or medical startup, there are certain things you have to have. And but it's oh, you always have to have a team. You always have to have a big enough market and and product market fit. And if you're doing something with deep tech, you have to have intellectual property. So we cover all those things. That's, um, yeah, for the for listeners, um, I'm just looking through this now. Um, Stephanie just mentioned several of the key bullets on this list of about ten things or more, but yeah, this is this is a great list. All of this is critical to the you know the success of somebody trying to get started and being successful with a startup. Well, uh, one of the fun things is these entrepreneur stories because yeah. you get to hear firsthand. You know, these pathways are almost never straight. And, you know, some entrepreneurs got lucky and had some good funding sources from the beginning and others just struggle. But they persist because that's what being an entrepreneur is about. So I love the stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Everything's recorded and the, the lecturers come from Silicon Valley. So these are actual practitioners. These are not academics. They're VCs and angel investors, startup founders, a lot of serial entrepreneurs because people who do this just can't get it out of their blood. So they sell a company or shut down a company or whatever. And then a year later, they're doing a new company. I've got an IP attorney who's really good at explaining how complicated this field is, which always leads me to the conclusion that everyone should reach is you need an IP attorney. I have business development executives from pharmaceutical companies explaining how to partner with them and what they're looking for, because in many cases, 50% of their innovation comes from outside. And that means small companies, these small biotechs and medical device companies, same deal. And I have an FDA regulatory consultant and health insurance uh, people talking. So those are uh, health insurance. They're the people who reimburse. So if you can't figure out what they need to see, you're not going to win in this game. Do you spend any time on SBIR grants and STTR grants? You know, not much. I mentioned them. That it's a really key way, um, initial way to get funded. And I actually, I will speak a little bit in um, in my lecture on opportunity. But yeah, they're very important. And there's some tricks to knowing how to respond to their uh, their requirements. I'm actually a reviewer for SBIR grants, and um, so I have a bit of an inside view as well. Oh, okay. But, that's, that's great. Yeah. This is our first lecturer. He's um, he's a double a double venture capitalist, uh, works for two major VC firms, and he's going to be speaking about opportunity assessment. He's, um, he's really a great lecturer. Mentors. So we have many serial entrepreneurs, investors, consultants, pharmaceutical executives who are experts, and they are willing to provide 
help and, and, and help people guide discussions and encourage the next generation of entrepreneurs. So this wonderful group of mentors who have been involved with my entrepreneurship program now for a number of years are going to be leading these sector forums. And the sector forums are based around the different interests in the life science healthcare world. So I know, uh, Ted, you do a lot in devices. We, we will have a device sector forum where people who have that interest can meet with a, a mentor who is from that sector and discuss anything they want to. And then we're doing the same for digital health diagnostics and um, therapeutics. And I don't know why that's not there, I guess, because I said pharmaceutical executives. So um, it's a great opportunity to engage with your classmates and engage with a mentor and get some really valuable advice. Yeah. And then uh, just quickly, it's an online class. It's both live and recorded. It's 10 weeks. It's an hour and a half weekly lectures. And then these sector peer forums in addition um, on different days and as well topical study groups on things like fundraising and building a team and assessing the market. And then office hours and people get to meet with me and I get to find out what they're all about and how I can help. And we have a great advisory board, people from there and a major angel group here, Novartis Venture Fund, um, our industry organization, Bio and and a, a company lots of great partners and supporters and that's the website so that's the class and thanks for the opportunity to talk about it right okay so if somebody's just listening and doesn't get a chance to see these slides what you should do is look up ucsf innovation ventures this is what you should google and when you get there you're going to look for the uh, global online entrepreneurship class and the other thing that I was really um, surprised at was I felt it was an economical program. I think it was around $1,000 or something to participate. Yes, which, more or less, and, yeah. which is, I, I happen, happen to agree with you. It's a great value. It's There's so much time that you get from, this is not just go sit and have and watch a lecture and go home. This is a great chance to engage as well with um, class members and experts of various sorts. And compared to Stanford and Berkeley and MIT and Harvard, it's an amazing value. I mean, for somebody to get an hour of many of these lectures time <laughs> would cost well in excess of, of, the, of, the, um, uh, of the tuition for this program. So anyway, really good job. This looks very, in fact, when I was looking through it, I thought, gosh, maybe I should take that someday. <laughs> I'd so, love to have you in this, Ted. <laughs> I'll let so you anyway. interview some of the speakers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. V very good. Well, thank you for sharing all that with us, and which was one of the objectives of this program. Um, you can, if you want to unshare your screen, there you go. That's good, yeah. Um, okay, so I'm just trying to think, is there, um, let me look at my notes here. We've we covered all the questions related to the course. Any other final thoughts that you have about, you know, going forward in in terms of the potential for startups and the kind of people we need for them and the kind of leadership we need? Well, first, I'm going to say you're a great interviewer, Ted. So thank you. For this. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, um, I'm passionate about startups because it's through startups that we can lift societies out of poverty, that we can bring new inventions to market uh, and that impact human health. I've chosen this field because I want to do something that's significant with my life. And I think if I can help um, people with great ideas figure out how to get them commercialized, then, then I've done my bit. And um, we need entrepreneurs. And this is the whole world needs entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs in the United States. And we need people who can make a difference in uh, human health, who can think innovatively and who are willing to step outside the boundaries and the constraints of large companies and make something happen. So I hope that maybe this motivated somebody out there to think about entrepreneurship as a potential career. But um, yeah, I, I hope more people join us. Well, I'm sure you did, and I'm sure more people will. So, Stephanie, I'd like to thank you very much for the time that you spent with us today. This has really been terrific. And I would, you know, I always tell uh, some of my interviewees that I reserve the right to pursue you in another year to, to see how <laughs> things went since our last conversation. Absolutely. Happy to do it anytime, Ted. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Okay. You're welcome. Have a good day. You have just heard from a woman who is an important part of the fabric of the life science startup ecosystem, not only in Silicon Valley, but all around the world. It is impressive to think about the impact that she has had, not only on the companies that she has nurtured, but also lives of patients that have benefited from those companies in the end. One person can make a difference. You can make a difference in the way that you approach your life in your colleagues, and your family. If you are optimized, then other people benefit, whether, th whether they are your family, co-workers, or the patients that you and your company serve. In the show notes, you will find links to Stephanie's LinkedIn profile and the global online entrepreneurship class and also the innovation ventures uh, program in total at the University of California, San Francisco. You will also find links to Yours truly. Thanks again for listening to this conversation today. I hope you got something out of it. I sure did. If you like this podcast, please rate it, recommend it, and subscribe. Now go win your week. <laughs>